Would you take your Bible, please? Turn to Matthew chapter 18, if you would please. Matthew chapter 18. We'll go to that text in just a moment here. Matthew chapter 18, please. While you're turning, I'll share this. This picture probably appeared in your TV screen about six or seven summers ago. As you may remember, a Muslim gunman came to Chattanooga and went to the Navy Recruiting Center on Lee Highway and shot up the front of the building without injuring anybody. But then he went over to Nicola Highway, went inside the Navy Training Center, and shot and killed five young sailors. Folks, our son BJ was at the recruiting center the day before that happened. He spent all day Saturday and all day Sunday at the training center three days before it happened. So the timing had been slightly different. BJ could have been there and been involved and even been killed. And our hearts went out to the families of the five that were killed, but we were so thankful, so very thankful that BJ was not involved. But I want to say this. Typically, when death comes to a young person, it usually comes suddenly, doesn't it? With an older person, there's a progressive illness and we see death approaching. But usually with a young person, it takes place very unexpectedly. So I'm saying this. If you're not saved, the time to be saved would be today, wouldn't it? I would assume in a crowd this size, almost everybody here knows the Lord. You've been saved. You put your faith in the Lord perhaps even years and years and years ago. You know the Lord. But in a crowd this size, it could very easily be at least one person, maybe more, who do not yet know Jesus as Savior. Could I take a moment before going to our message and just share the gospel, how to receive the Lord as Savior? One night I heard a man say, getting saved is as simple as A, B, C. And I thought about that. I thought we could take those three letters, A, B, C, let them stand for the three things from the Word of God that a person needs to know to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. A would stand for the word admit. Say it with me. Admit that you are a sinner. Again, admit that you are a sinner. We like to think of ourselves as good moral people, don't we? The Bible says we're sinners. We need a Savior. Romans 3.23 is a verse you probably know. Say the verse with me if you would. Together, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. What is the second word in the verse? And who would that include? Every single one of us. You may be the best person in the whole state of Georgia, but if you've not been saved, your sins have not been forgiven. You need a Savior. And again, the A, say it with me, admit that you are a sinner. B stands for the word believe. Say it with me. Believe that Jesus died for you. Again, believe that Jesus died for you. Jesus Christ is God. Amen. In fact, he's the creator of the universe. One day he left heaven. He came to earth. He lived among people for 33 years. He never sinned one time. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that Jesus was as tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He never sinned one time. Therefore, he qualified as a lamb of God. He could die in your place, die in my place, take our sins upon himself. Jesus not only died for our sins, he died in our sins. He was buried. And what happened three days and three nights later? Because he's God, he arose from the grave, and he's alive this morning. I love the verse, Romans 5, 8. Say the verse with me, if you would please, together. But God commendeth his love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Again, the B, believe that Jesus died for you. Our next letter is C, would stand for the word call. Say it with me. Call on Jesus to save you. Again, call on Jesus to save you. A very special promise in our Bible, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. A promise from God himself. You find a promise in your Bible, you can trust that promise, can't you? 
It's a promise from God himself. Read the promise with me together. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 10, 13. What is the second word in the promise? Who is that? That is anybody and everybody. Jesus didn't just die for certain people. He died for you. doesn't matter how good you are, how bad you are. Jesus died in your place. He wants to be your Savior. He knows your name. He knows your email address. He knows you. He knows me. And even though He knows us, He still loves us. And He went to Calvary to die for us. If you're here this morning, you've never received Jesus. It's as simple as ABC. A, admit to God that you're a sinner. The Bible says repent. Ask God to turn you from your sin. Ask for His forgiveness. B, believe that Jesus loved you, that He died on the cross, that He shed His blood in your place, that He came back to life in three days and three nights. And if you believe that, say amen. amen. He did that for us. C, just call on Jesus. The promise is there. He will save you if you call on Him. And I can make you this promise. If you receive Jesus as your Savior, have your sins forgiven, have the gift of eternal life, if you get saved... You will never once regret that decision. You'll never regret that. Being saved is an awesome thing. Stand with me if you would. Let's sing a chorus and we'll read from Matthew 18 if you have your place in your Bible. Sing with me if you would. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free. I was lost, but Jesus found me. I was blind, but now I can see. I was bound, but he set me free. Now I am his for eternity. So thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free. If you enjoy your salvation, say amen. amen. Matthew chapter 18, look at verse 1 with me if you would please, as we're still standing. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a well-known pastor unto him. No, no, he called a world-renowned evangelist. Now, who did he call? A little child, a little kid. And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receiveth me. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, that it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. As we read through the passage, do you get the idea that children are important to God? You can't miss that. Look at verse 14. Read verse 14 aloud with me, if you would please, together. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. 
Would you be seated, please? Would you bow with me in prayer, if you would please? Our topic this morning for the first part of the hour, Reaching America's Youth, Reaching America's Young People with the Gospel of our Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Father, what a blessed, blessed privilege it is for me to stand and to share your word this morning. I would ask again that you'd fill me with your power, with your spirit. And Lord God, take this simple message and use it to speak to our hearts. Help us as a church, as a local lighthouse, to see the importance of reaching the children for you, reaching the teenagers for you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let me start by asking you a question. Would you agree with this statement? Even a child of five, if properly instructed, can is truly believe and be regenerated as an adult. Is that true? Can a five-year-old get saved? Talk to me. A five years old is pretty young, folks. I got saved at home when I was four years old. I grew up in a home where Dad read the Bible to us every morning and every evening faithfully. He called it devotions. He had us in church every time their doors were open. Mom had Christian radio playing, KHEP Radio, Phoenix, Arizona. And so at four years old, one day I went to my mom and I said, Mom, would you show me how to get saved? My mom dried her hand on the dish towel, took her Bible, knelt beside a little tiny couch, and from the book of Romans showed me how to receive the Lord. Now, folks, at four years old, I did not understand the whole Bible. I could not define the word propitiation for you. Could you define it for me right now? But at four years old, I knew I was a sinner. I believed that Jesus died and rose again. And the verse my mom showed me in conclusion, Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Kneeling beside a little couch as a four-year-old, I asked Lord Jesus to be my Savior. You know what God did for me? First of all, He forgave my sin forever. I have been justified. I love that word. Secondly, He gave me eternal life. Thirdly, He adopted me into the family. I am a child of God forever. Folks, I love being saved. And if you're here this morning, you've not been saved, don't even wait till tomorrow. It's so good you want to start today. Receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You will never regret that. And by the way, at four years old, I got saved. I never had to go back and repeat the experience and just make sure when God saved me at four years old, He saved me forever. Now, I come from a big family. I've got four brothers, two sisters. Each of my sisters has five brothers and one sister. It's a big family. Now, if you're trying to do the math, that's seven kids, okay? But all seven of us were saved before our sixth birthday. Now, that's a tribute to the grace of God, but also a tribute to my mom and dad, their faithfulness. Thank God the young children can be saved. The key is the second line, if properly instructed. Now, I don't think we should bring four-year-olds or five-year-olds on the church bus, the church van, and then try to pressure them into, leading, into getting saved the very first Sunday they hear the gospel. Especially with the young children, they learn slowly, very carefully, line upon line, precept upon precept, and you be careful to allow the Holy Spirit of God to be the one that draws that child to the Savior. We're not talking him into it or coercing him or trying to trick him. It's going to be the Holy Spirit drawing them. Amen? Now, the man who made this statement, of course, was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a London preacher. Years ago, a group did a survey in Bible-preaching churches across America, and they asked the question, if you're a child of God, if you have been saved, you know the Lord, at what age did you get saved? Now, these are Americans, okay, but here's the results of the survey. They found that 1% of those who do get saved do so in the early, early childhood. I would fit in that category. Furthermore, they found that only 10% of Americans who do get saved do so during the teen and young adult years. They found furthermore that only 4% of those who get saved do it at age 30 or later. Think about that. In America, according to the survey, 85% of those who do get saved do so between the age of 5 and 14, the period of life referred to as childhood. 
Folks, there's a man who joined our church recently, Brother Levi. He has a burden to reach kids with the gospel. I thank God for a man like that. But folks, he can't do this job by himself. As he's already mentioned, there's a need for volunteers, isn't there? Now, typically, children's ministry is not a high-prestige ministry. People don't say, oh, wow, you're a children's worker. Sometimes you're actually put down for that. But this is the ministry that's very close to the heart of our Savior. And I would encourage you, as Levi is making this appeal, to be praying, God, can you use me in children's ministry? That's the world's biggest mission field, folks. And it's also the world's most receptive mission field. There's no mission field like it. Read verse 14 one more time with me, if you would please, together. Even so, it is not the will of your Father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. What's the last word in the verse? What does that word mean in Scripture? John 3.16 also. It's more than just die. It means to die lost, to die without Christ. When a person dies without Jesus, be it a teenager, be it a child, be it an adult, when a person dies without Christ, they are condemned to hell immediately, aren't they? And worse than that, on judgment day, they're condemned to the lake of fire forever and forever and forever. That is the word perish. Jesus said, it's not the will of your Father, which is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. He wants, to reach him with it. He wants us to reach them with the gospel. James Dobson shared this about four summers ago. He tells us a builder generation, and that's the people born between 27 and 45. He tells us in America, basically 65% of them have been reached with the gospel. Generation, or I'm sorry, the boomers, born from uh, 64 to 46 to 64, and 35% of them have been reached. Generation X, born from 65 to 76, 16%. The Bridgers, born from 77 to 94, you are not ready for this. 4%. Do you see what's happening in America today? We who have the gospel, the good news of Calvary, the offer of salvation is a free gift. What a glorious, glorious gospel that is. And we who have the gospel are somehow failing to take that gospel to the next generations. Where the millennials be, I don't even know. On an average day in America, each and every day, folks, six, kid, six children commit suicide. That is 42 kids a week. Last year around Christmas time, I emailed a pastor in South Carolina. I'm sorry, I tried to call him, and I got a text. I can't talk right now. Then later in the afternoon, he called me and said, I couldn't take your, your call this morning. I'm sorry. I was dealing with the parents of a 12-year-old boy who took his life this morning. Several years ago, I did a drug program at Ringo Middle School, the junior high school there. The week before I was there, an eighth-grade boy, 13 years old, had taken his own life. As it turned out, he's involved in devil worship, and he wanted out so desperately he's willing to take his own life to escape it. The kids were to talk about it when I was there that week. On an average day in America, 13 children are homicide victims, many of them at the hands of their own parents. On an average day in America, 5,753 children are arrested. On an average day in America, 1,329 babies are born to teenage mothers. On an average day in America, 367 children are arrested for drug abuse each and every day. On an average day in America, 34 children die from accidents. On an average day in America, more than 17,000 public school children are suspended from school each and every day. Folks, what's the answer? Well, we need a better educational system. We need more federal funding, a better environment. Folks, the bottom line is this. These kids need the Lord Jesus. They need the gospel. When I was in first and second grade in public school, and I said public school, 
When I was in public school, my teachers opened class with what they called devotions. <laughs> Do you know what devotions are? My teacher would take her King James Bible, read a passage of scripture in the classroom, and nobody was offended. She'd stop and close devotions with prayer, and she prayed in the name of Jesus. We stopped at lunchtime. We bowed our heads as a class. She led us in prayer, and she prayed in the name of Jesus. I don't know who they were, but twice a year, an older couple came to our school, set up giant visuals in the gymnasium, had a school-wide assembly, and preached the gospel, and gave a salvation invitation in my public school. I'd give you my house if I could do that today. Take the gospel to public schools. The average starting age for marijuana use is 13. For alcohol, it's 11 and a half. I did a drug program in middle school. I'm sorry, the elementary school years ago. When I finished, all the kids are filing out. A little five-year-old boy came up to me. He said, Mr. Ed, I drink beer. I looked at him and said, you do? Where did you get it? And here's his tragic answer. Mama gives it to me. I could instantly see the face, Mom, Mom. Mom never gave me beer. My mom gave me the gospel. My dad, I never saw my dad shooting up or using drugs, but twice a day my dad read the Bible to us as a family. I look at this little five-year-old boy, and I'm thinking, he does not have the same heritage that I do. He will not hear the gospel in his own home like I did. Somebody outside his home has to bring the gospel to him or bring him to the gospel where he hear the gospel. And that's why this lighthouse is here today. Amen. There's a job to do. There's a job to do. In the past 20 years, suicide has tripled among our 10 to 14-year-olds. Every 78 seconds, an adolescent attempts suicide. Among America's youth, the fastest-growing religion is Satanism. Do you find that hard to believe? Several years ago, you may not, I don't know if you saw this or not, but they interviewed the sheriff of Hamilton County in the Free Press. And he said this, he said, My deputies and I are finding numerous places in the woods where there are sacrifices to the devil. On occasion, we're actually finding human sacrifices. That's Hamilton County. I'm saying this, there's a need, there's a, there's a crying need. Every 31 seconds, an adolescent gets pregnant. Does anybody here know where Ward, Arkansas is? Okay, we're talking just a rural area, just a small dot on the map, just a little country town in the middle of nowhere. A lady in this church came up to me. She said, last year, in our little country school, before the year was finished, three of our sixth graders delivered babies. When a nation turns its back on God, who gets hurt the worst? It is going to be our children. Every 20 minutes, an adolescent is killed in an accident. One in seven young teens, we're talking 8th, ninth, and 10th graders, has attempted suicide. These are not kids that want to die, but they want to escape the pain in which they live. Daily marijuana use among 8th graders has quadrupled since 1992. Half of today's high school seniors have tried illegal drugs at least once. The last number I saw was 54%, slightly more than half. By the way, what is the number one drug problem in America today? Do you know? It's not crack. It's not even heroin. Alcohol. Alcohol, by the numbers, has done more devastation than all of the illegal drugs put together. And in most places we go, it's still legal. It's still socially accepted. Alcohol is a killer. And I can't get my remote to to advance. There we go. Almost 90% have tried alcohol. We're talking teenagers, okay? There are presently more than 3,300,000 teenage alcoholics, and that is not worldwide. That's just in America alone. Folks, does this trouble you? At least a little bit. We are not yet reaching the next generation for the Lord. 
And I thank God, Brother Levi is here, and we're going to, he's going to put together a program, and we're going to see if we can build this ministry and reach souls for the, for the Lord's glory. Get involved. Ask God to use you. There's such a need. Right now, this is an amazing thing. A slightly higher percentage of girls than boys use alcohol and illegal drugs. That, to me, is incredible. About six or seven years ago, the numbers actually flipped where the girls now are the leaders in that. In a recent survey, 86% of young men, 31% of young women reported viewing pornography in the last year. And if you're a parent or grandparent, be aware of this. You've got to try to protect your young men and protect their hearts from this, but you've got to protect the hearts of your young ladies as well. I was reading an article in today's Christian Woman. This is astounding. They were saying that one in six American women are now pornography addicts because of the access to the Internet. Folks, we're living in wicked, wicked times. We've got to guard our own hearts and guard the hearts of those that are following us. Now, here's a question I want to address. Who was given the responsibility of training our kids to know and follow Christ? You're a parent or a grandparent. You just saw the stats. You just saw the numbers on the screen. And surely you said, that's not good enough for my kids. That's not good enough for my grandkids. I want to see my kids serve the Lord. I want to see my kids glorifying God. So whose responsibility is it to, to treat those kids? Is it the responsibility of the church? Or is it the responsibility of the home? Just to make sure we know for sure, would you turn to Deuteronomy, the Old Testament, the fifth book, Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you would please. This is a very well-known passage to the Hebrew people. They call this the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll look in just a moment at verse 4. Verse 4 together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words, verse 6, these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. So who is given the responsibility of training the kids? It's not given to the youth director. It's not given to the Sunday school teacher or even the pastor. It's given to the home, to parents. And then one more group as well. Turn over one page, chapter 4, and look at verse 9. Only take heed to thyself, and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget the things which thine eyes have seen, lest they depart from thy heart all the days of thy life. Now, notice the next phrase is here. But teach them thy sons and thy sons' sons. So that responsibility of training the kids is not given to the local church or the Christian day school. It's given to the parents. And also one more group. Did you catch it? To the who? The grandparents. Many, many times people say, well, thank God for a good, strong church. Thank God for our pastor. Thank God for a godly youth director. And we are at home. are coming alongside, and we're reinforcing everything they're doing down at the church. Well, if you're thinking that way, you're thinking backwards. You should be saying, we are training our kids at home to follow Christ. Thank God our church is coming alongside and reinforcing what we are doing in the home. That responsibility of training the kids is not given to our church. It's given to the parents and it's given to the grandparents. Now, with that in mind, I want to take you to a verse in Proverbs. Uh, Don't turn to it. I'll just put it on the screen to save time. But read the verse with me, if you would, please. Together. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs 4.23. What is the first word in the verse? What does that word mean? God is not saying, here, keep this for me. Hold this. It's a medieval term. Back in the days of knights and castles, the safest part of the castle was called the keep. It has strong, sturdy walls. It was guarded night and day. The word keep means to guard. God says, I want you to be careful. I want you to be diligent to guard your heart. 
We're in a battle. And I've been studying medieval warfare and castle defenses and all that for the last 12 years, whatever. We're writing a, a book series, the Dresser Chronicles. And one thing I discovered in my, in my studies, the battle for the castle was almost always a battle for the entrance because the entrance was the weakest part of the castle. Therefore, the men that designed castles and built castles would protect the castle entrance in five basic ways. You're familiar with some of these. Number one would be the moat. Number two would be the gates. They were massive, usually made of oak, usually more than a foot thick. Each gate by itself would weigh tons and tons and tons. You can't visualize how massive the gates really were. Number three would be the drawbridge. You're familiar with that. Number four would be the, what do you call that? It's called the portcullis. Typically made of iron, or made of oak and clad with iron. But the average portcullis would weigh in excess of 20 tons, more than 40,000 pounds. Two dozen enemy knights cannot go dashing across the drawbridge and raise the portcullis. But there's no way. The only way, way to raise 20 tons was a series of counterweights and pulleys and chains. We're talking a massive barrier there. Number five, a very interesting little room directly over the main gate of the castle, known as the gatehouse. In the floor of that little room were huge holes called murder holes, M-U-R-D-E-R, murder holes. You're defending knight inside the castle gatehouse. You look down through the murder holes. You see the heads of enemy knights down below attacking your castle gate. You are ready for them. Your racks are large boulders weighing 80 or 90 or 100 pounds apiece, and their racks almost like bowling balls. So here's the enemy down below. You're just unracking these boulders and dropping through the murder holes on the heads of the knights below. Now imagine a 90-pound boulder falling 26 feet, striking the enemy in the head, What's the result? You take the guy out just like, hey, he's gone. And so you protect the castle entrance in those five basic ways. Number one was the moat. Number two, the gates. Number three, the drawbridge. Number four, the porculus. Number five, the gatehouse. I was studying this one afternoon, and it occurred to me in a flash, we're commanded to guard our hearts for the Lord. We're in a battle. Do you know how you guard your heart? You guard your heart in exactly the same way that a medieval knight would guard a castle. You guard the entrances. What are the entrances to your heart? I know two. Number one would be the eye gate. Number two would be the ear gate. Therefore, it follows, if I can be diligent to guard my heart for the Lord, I have got to be diligent to guard my eyes and be diligent to guard my ears. Now, can I be real specific? What did appear on your TV screen during the past week? Were there any programs that dishonored your Lord? Folks, the devil knows what he's doing. And one of the tools he's used to draw the hearts of believers away from the Lord is the television, the programs. Now, I got saved, as I told you, when I was four years old. I have known the Lord, I think, for 62 years, if I did the math correctly. 62 years. That makes me sound really old, doesn't it? Wow. And I say this from a position of weakness, not from strength. Even after being saved for 62 years, knowing the Lord for 62 years, the Holy Spirit of God lived within me for 62 years, I am still so very vulnerable if I watch TV. Not long after we got married, Elma and I discussed that. We don't, watch, we don't turn on the TV. We don't watch the sports. We don't, watch, we don't even watch the news. It's all presented by these leftist people who destroy this nation. Why, why give them an audience? But we'll watch, like right now, we're watching Father Knows Best. It was done back in the 60s, I guess. It's black and white. They don't cuss on the program. I'm saying this, guard your heart. You and I are vulnerable. The devil knows what he's doing. The average TV in America is on seven hours and seven minutes a day. That's the average. The average viewer watches four and a half hours a day. The average Christian home watches about half an hour less. 
For a number of years, my family and I traveled in a motorhome. We homeschooled our kids, and on a Saturday evening, pulled up to church, and we'd hook up to power and water and offload equipment. And if there was a parsonage right next door, maybe a staff member lived there, or even the pastor lived there. My son Steve would say, Dad, can I go up and get some videos? And I'd say, sure, see what they say. And folks, more times than I could count, he'd come back and say, Dad, they had a lot of R-rated stuff there. Folks, we've got to protect the hearts of the generation that's following us, but we also have to guard our own hearts. If you'll be honest, uh, we are vulnerable here. We really are. Women over 55 watch an average of 36 hours a week. Now think with me. A generation or two ago, what group of people in the local church were known as the prayer warriors? Do you remember? Was it not the grandmothers? If this is accurate, I have no reason to doubt it. The grandmothers are no longer on their knees praying for their church and praying for the country and praying for the pastor and praying for the teenagers and praying for the neighbors. Now they're on the, on the couch watching reality shows. We wonder why we're losing our teens and losing our nation, losing our churches. Is there a correlation here? I think perhaps there is. I think there is. Read a verse with me, if you would, together. I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. Psalm 1, 2, and 3. And maybe this should be the, the filter. Put that on top of your TV set. If it's a wicked thing, a program that dishonors God, we don't watch it in our home. Only those things that, are, that will not dishonor God. Another thing the devil's used to huge advantage, what is that? Music. And music is a gift from God, amen? Thank God for music. I love music. I play music all day long. I play music when I'm writing. I play music when I'm working. I play music when I'm driving. I thank God every day for music. Music is a gift from God, isn't it? And by the way, folks, music is powerful. If you're a person who's always down and discouraged and defeated, do you know how to have victory? Good gospel music. Music will lift your spirits and give you victory. Sing a song to the Lord. You're discouraged one day. Open your mouth and sing a song of praise to God. Your song of praise to God thrills the heart of Almighty God, but also to lift your spirits and give you victory. How do you fight temptation? At the moment of temptation, you're about to give in. Yes, quote scripture. Yes, pray and ask for deliverance. But also at the moment of temptation, open your mouth and sing a song of praise to God. It's like the temptation says, man, I'm out of here. I don't want to hear this. There is power in praise. And our adversary, who's trying to destroy our kids and destroy our teenagers, destroy our church and destroy our country, knows how powerful music really is. He's taken this beautiful gift that came from God and twisted it and changed it and perverted it, and he's actually using it as a weapon against the castle. I'm saying this. You cannot fill your heart and mind with the world's music, the pop music, the rap music, the rock music. You cannot fill your heart and mind with that music and live a life of victory. It's not going to happen. Remember the old computer slogan, G-I-G-O? How many remember that? G-I-G-O in computer world. What did that mean, remember? Garbage in, garbage out. You put the wrong data in your computer, you get the wrong things out, don't you? It's the same way in the spiritual realm. You put the wrong music into your heart, the wrong things will come out. I'm saying this, music is powerful. By the way, Grandpa, you can't lecture your teens about their rock music and get in the truck and turn on the country music. Now, some of the country music has beautiful, beautiful melodies. I'll give you that. But the message of the song can be very, very bad. Let's move on here. Another thing the devil's used to huge advantage is what? Friends. Thank God for friends, amen? The right friend is a source of strength. The wrong friend can take you down. I've got a friend in Texas. He's in charge of a large children's ministry there. And several years ago, we were, I was on the phone with him. He said, you sound kind of discouraged. This is when my wife, Janice, was battling cancer. He said, you sound like you're kind of discouraged. I said, well, Robbie, we're, we're battling cancer here. Yeah, it's been pretty tough. 
You know what he said? This is unbelievable. He said, Ed, I'll be right there. He lives in Texas. He hopped in his truck and drove to Georgia. He said, kneel beside me, put his arm around me, and pray with me, and be a friend. That's a true friend, amen? The wrong friend can take you down. And it's not just, just kids that are vulnerable. There's peer pressure among adults. I'm saying this, choose your friends carefully, and then help your kids, the kids who are following you, teach them how to choose the right friends. I've got a friend who is six foot eight. He weighs 280 pounds. He's a clown. His clown name is Tiny. Tiny, the 280-pound clown. Can you imagine? He was doing a crusade up in Shenandoah Valley, Virginia. And on Monday night, a young girl came and heard the gospel. She was 12 years old. Heard the gospel, got saved on Monday night. Tim said she came every night that week. He said, I went back to the same church exactly one year later. The 12-year-old girl is now 13. On Monday night, she didn't come to the crusade. She went out with another friend, another girl, also 13, Those two young ladies stole a car and tried to drive it. Got involved in a serious accident. Their car, their vehicle was flipped upside down, and both those girls, 13 years old, lost their lives in that accident. But why did two girls die instead of just one? One girl is a child of God. She'd been saved. The other girl is saying, hey, I'm bad. I can do anything I want to. That second girl was, was killed because she had the wrong friend. We've got to teach our kids to choose the right friends and also ourselves. Hang around with people who love the Lord. Another tool the devil's used, and what is that? The printed page, books, and magazines. Well, let me say this. The American Library Association is no friend of your family. They have an agenda. If you go to the public library, find a book that's by, by the way, I was with my daughter one day in the kids section, and I pulled down a book, had a strange title. I'm going to give you the title. I thought, that's a strange title. I opened it up. And the page I turned to, I'm reading the most graphic description of perversion you can imagine. I took it to the librarian and said, ma'am, this is in the kids' section. Read this. She read it, looked at me, said so. I said, ma'am, this is in the children's section. And she actually said this. She said, sir, there are parents who want their kids to have access to this. I said, no, ma'am, not in my library. They gave me a freedom to read statement. Have you seen the freedom to read statement issued by the American Library Association? It basically says you have no right to impose your narrow views on society. We'll choose the books, get out of our face, and it says that in polite language. They also have the freedom to view statement. They want you, your spouse, your teens, your little kids to have access to anything on the Internet at all. No holds barred. Now, folks, I'm not making this up. I was flying beside a young guy one day, and he's probably 25, 26 years old. I said, what do you do for a living? He said, well, I go into the school systems, put the safeguards in the computer systems, protect our kids. I looked at him and said, hey, thank you, sir, or glad you're there, or appreciate what you're doing. Something to that effect. He looked at me and said, not everybody appreciates me. I said, you face opposition? He said, all the time. It is fierce. I said, who, the students? He said, no, sir, the, the kids are never a problem. I said, who? You're not ready for this. He said, the teachers, and especially the librarians, they do not want me there. I said, let me follow through with another question. I want to make sure I really understand what you're saying here. Are you telling me there are teachers? Are you telling me there's librarians? In our school system, they want the kids to have access to the pornography. He said, sir, that's exactly what I'm saying. Let me say this gently and lovingly. If your kids or grandkids are in the public school, they're there because you don't really know what's happening there. If you could walk in one day and just... Be invisible for a day and walk. You'd leave and you guarantee you would not have your kids there. Sure. Let's move on quickly. Another tool the devil's use, of course, is the internet, the information superhighway. There's some incredible information there, isn't it? It's incredible. It's on the internet. 
But as we know, there's also some horrible, horrible stuff that can destroy lives, destroy marriages. And I'm going to ask my computer to put a picture on the screen for three seconds. It'll time it. And uh, we'll check out this picture here. Okay, here we go. Jeff's eyes light up. Okay, what did you see? Talk to me. What did you see? Okay, what color was it? And what was the make? Did you catch the make? A BMW. It's not a Harley. It's a real motorcycle. Okay, it's a BMW. Now, how many saw the picture of my bike? Two of you? How many saw the picture of the bike? Okay, we all did. Now, this for me, if you would, just, just erase the picture. It's gone, isn't it? No. It's still there, isn't it? I can go back a year from now, mention that motorcycle, and just like that, your mind will bring up that picture. I could come back 15 years from now, mention the motorcycle, and you'll probably look at me and say, no, Brother Ed, I just I don't remember. But I'm told that even 15 years from now, a scientist who knows what he's doing can put two little tiny electrodes on your brain, and just like that, that picture will come back 15 years from now. If that be true, then it behooves us to be very, very, very careful what passes through the eye gate if you want to serve the Lord. Video games, I don't have time to deal with them, but they are by design addictive. They're deadly. I could tell you story after story after story after story, sometimes and even in our family, of lives have been destroyed because of video games. One spring somehow I got an email list and I had all these, all these messages coming in about people that are being destroyed by video games. One was a young junior high student who was playing a game, I'm not sure the name of the game, but it's an educational game where you're building a city, you're about trade and commerce. He wasn't playing Grand Theft Auto, okay? He built a city over a period of weeks. When his hard drive crashed and his city was gone, he took his own life. That's called addiction. Video games are deadly. There's a, a, a scientist up in Canada. She's not a believer. She's not a pastor's wife. I don't, I don't think she's even a believer. Her name is Chris Rowan. She's a scientist. And she's telling parents, she's telling school systems, please don't put any electronics in the hands of your kids until they're at least 12 years old. If you wait longer, that's even better. She tells us that technology overuse is a factor rising childhood rates of depression, anxiety, attachment disorder, attention deficit, bipolar disorder, psychosis, problematic behavior. And she's begging parents, please don't put the electronics in the hands of the kids. Wait until they're at least 12 years old longer if you can, because these things are so destructive. I think we can learn from her. We're out of time here. Let me try to finish quickly. Back in the old days, the days of knights and castles, there are men on top of the castle wall every day, night and day, guarding the castle. Does anybody know what those men were called? It starts with the letter S. Sentries. If you're a sentry, typically you should show, stood a four-hour watch. For four hours, you stood on, stood on top of the castle wall. It's called the curtain. You stood on the castle curtain. You didn't play chess with a friend. You didn't read a really good book. For four hours, you stood there, and you watched and guarded the castle approach. As a century, he had four, excuse me, three basic duties. I'm going to share this with you. And I think you'll see that we as parents and grandparents have the same three basic duties. Number one, say it with me, is to watch for the enemy. I read a story from European history how a castle was taken with almost no battle at all. The sentry was very diligent. He's watching the castle approach. And he saw an old farmer, a sleepy old farmer, driving a, a hay wagon loaded high with hay. He thought nothing about it. The wagon and a load of hay started across the, cast, across the drawbridge, passing between the, under the porculus, passed between the castle gates. And just as the team of horses was passing between the gates, the sentry, or the old man came alive. Whoa! And he stopped the wagon, and the hay wagon seemed to explode. A dozen enemy knights came bursting out of the hay. 
And they tend to realize this is not a sleepy old farmer. It's actually an enemy knight. He tried to drop the porculus, but the castle, the hay wagon was right in the way, and it blocked the, the, the porculus open about four and a half feet. He couldn't close and bar the gates. The team of horses right in the way. He couldn't even raise the drawbridge because the back wheels of the battle wagon were on the drawbridge. Come out of the way, the battle wagon and the porculus kept him from raising the drawbridge. There was no way to seal out the entrance. 400 enemy knights came burst down the forest, dashed across the drawbridge, ducked down the porculus, and took the castle almost no battle at all. The sentry did not recognize the enemy. We're facing an adversary who is far more intelligent than any person here. He has over 6,000 years of experience. He wants to take out your kids. Folks, we've got to get serious. Number two, sit with me. Close the gates. Close the gates. If the devil has some electronic device that's drawing you away from the Lord or drawing your kids away from the Lord or your spouse with it, shut that thing down. I was talking with a parent, up, a, a, a dad up in Pennsylvania one day. I don't know how it even came up, but he said, we put our kids in Christian school up through sixth grade, then in junior high and high school, put them in the public system. I said, why in the world would you put them in the public school? He said, well, hopefully got a good foundation in the early years, and they'll be able to withstand, and they'll do okay. And then probably 20 seconds later, he said, now one problem we're having this year, my son is 15, 10, 10th grade, and the girls in his class continue to send nude photos of themselves to him on his phone. Dad, how would you close the gates? If my son or daughter is facing that, my son or daughter does not need a, picture, a, a cell phone with picture capabilities. Amen. Take that away. And then thirdly, say it with me if you would, report the intruders to the castle commander. Every castle had a man known as the constable or the castellan. He's in charge of the garrisons and knights defending the castle. If I'm a sentry on top of the castle wall, I see a force of 600 men marching against my castle. I'm going to drop the porculus, raise the drawbridge, close the bar of the gates. Do I then hop over the castle wall and go against that force single-handedly? No, I get slaughtered if I try. After I've sealed off the entrance in those three basic ways, I find the castle commander. I say, sir, the castle's under attack. I put the battle in his hands. Yes, I'm going to fight alongside him, but the battle is now in his hands. And here's the good news in all this. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The only way to victory is through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me quickly share some things here, and we're out of time here. You say, Brother Ed, what can I do? I want to see my kids serve God. I want to see my grandkids serve God. I want to see my great-grandkids serve God. What can I do? Number one, surrender your all to the Lord. The generation following you does not need to see perfection. They don't expect perfection. They need to see reality. They need to see that you are real, that you believe what you say you believe. They've got to see that. Number two, actively teach and worship with those children. Now, here's an amazing thing from George Barnett. I'm assuming he's correct. He says that fewer than 10% of parents who regularly attend church with their kids, that's us. He says that fewer, those, fewer than 10% of those people read the Bible together, pray together, or participate in active service as a family unit. You're a child of God. You're raising kids, raising grandkids. Actively teach the Word of God to them. Don't just depend on the church, but actually teach to them. Okay. Number three, quickly. Somehow we lost number three. Number three, model your faith for your children. Again, they don't need to see perfection. They don't expect perfection, but they need to see reality. I was raised in a Christian home, as I told you. My dad had us in church faithfully. He read the Bible to us every day. One day he was under the car, working on the car. And two of my brothers and I were in the front yard playing. And dad was under the car, and the wrench slipped, and he skinned his knuckles. You guys know what that feels like, don't you? It hurts. And a moment later, he skinned his knuckles a second time. That hurt even more, as you can imagine. And each time, there's just kind of a howl of pain. 
And then the third time he skimmed his knuckles. My dad took God's name in vain. My brother and I just, brothers and I just stood there and stared at each other. We didn't know what to think. We didn't know what to, this was dad. My dad rolled out from under the car and ran inside the house. And my brothers and I were just stopped. We just stood there, not doing anything. Just stood there staring at each other for several minutes. Not sure how to even respond. And my dad came out and he was sobbing and sobbing. He said, boys, I'm so sorry. I love the Lord. I'm trying to set a good example for you guys. I'm so sorry. Folks, to be honest, my estimation, my dad went up a couple notches that day. He wasn't perfect. He failed. But love the Lord, and he's big enough to admit it. And that's what our kids need to see, reality. Number four, quickly, make church a priority. You cannot go wrong by building the life of your, church, of your family around the life of this church. Dad or grandpa, you stay home on Super Bowl Sunday night to see the game live instead of recording it. What does that teach your kids and your grandkids? Number five, help your children guard their hearts against the world's influences. That's some of what we're talking about today. Most young people don't know how to guard their hearts. You've got to be there for them and help them be, be there. Help your spouse. We're in this together. And then number six, pray daily for your children, for your grandchildren. My son Philip is, is 34 years old. My son Steve is 37. My daughter Rebecca is 40. Elma has a son who's 26 and another son who's 36, lives in California. They're adults. But every day of the week, we're on our knees praying for our five kids. We want to see them serve God. They're growing up in a wicked, wicked world. Their grand our grandkids are growing up in a wicked world. We've got to pray for our families. Would you bow your head with me, please? I want to ask you two very pointed, very personal questions, if I may. Number one, how many this morning say, Brother Ed, I see the seriousness of the battle in which we find ourselves. And I'm serious about serving my Lord and guarding my heart. And this morning, I'm just going to make a vow to God and say, Lord, with your help, I will guard my heart diligently. I'll be very, very discerning what I watch on TV. I'll be very careful what goes on the Internet. I'll be very careful what I read, the books I read, the, the magazines I peruse, the, the music I play. I'm asking God to help me be diligent to guard my heart for Him. If that's your heart, could I see your hand? I'm asking God to help me be diligent to guard my heart. Thank you. Second question. How many this morning say, Brother Ed, I am a parent or a grandparent? And I am committing myself this morning, asking God to help me to guard the hearts, to help guard the hearts of the generations following me. I will be there for them by God's help. Could I see your hand if that's your heart? Very good, thank you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. But right there in your seat, would you bow your head and just make those two vows to God? We're in a battle, folks. Mistakes are very, very high. Lord God, thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for those that have listened so well. Help us, Lord God, to come to victory in our families and our lives, and especially those young people that are following us. Help us be diligent to guard our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray.